I just opened the book this morning, and it's from uh, Jamie, uh, excuse me, Brad Fisher, who was the producer, who I love these guys, by the way. I don't think there's a villain in this book. <laughs> and he was saying, there's, no, really, I mean, these, these people are going to hang around with people to be these guys. They're just exciting. And it's, it's just, as I said in my note to you, it's a great adventure. So it says, there is something in these characters, the cartoonist, the inspector, the reporter, that exists in all of us, Brad said. The capacity for becoming consumed by something so fully that day after day, night after night, you can't ever truly put it away. It has the potential to be an incredibly destructive force. And now I think he just nailed it. I think that's why nobody can forget this case and why they, you know, who knows how many legions out there. This, this, my books have been translated. I don't think there's a language you missed. I, I had one, an audio book in Mandarin, Mandarin of all things, not, you know. And it's just thrilling. It really is. And and it's uh, something about that first book where you simply threw yourself into it. And that's all you could think about. And I told Fincher, I, I still, I see the ciphers dancing on the wall. And and uh, he put that in the movie. He has, that's one of the ways he solved it with him going through the uh, entryway to the Chronicle. And you see the, all the different things on the wall sort of coming and going. But his job mainly was to make it, uh, to make it truthful. And he really, in a way, if you want to get a villain, it would be him because he's saying, yeah, I'll do this, but I want to see this person. And they'll go and do that. Okay, now I might do the movie, but you got to get me the inspector. Okay, okay, <laughs> we got that. And it, well, we have to go to the scene and I have to speak to everybody. And so his idea was, this is a very, very ethical man. He doesn't need the money. Brad's, uh, Brad uh, is speculation. Jamie's uh, he's written the script for nothing. It's all spec. Yeah. If they make the movie, he's great. But this is a book about them, whether or not they're going to make the movie. And it's, it's pretty much up to David Fincher with the contract and the, the casting and the searching out the truth. And so I always love that, that in a way, I think you have a little perverse quality going there. No matter what they did, uh, he, he wanted more. Uh, David Fincher wants more. So I, I love this guy. And uh, he's just a truly interesting fellow. And to go right out of high school, right into working for Lucas. I mean, my God, what an amazing thing. And to go to such heights, uh, I think he's the, one of the greatest directors ever. That's the, and he's made the greatest movie about San Francisco in, in Zodiac. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, recently celebrating its 15th anniversary, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jack Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is the second last and 23rd episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Capricorn, Part 1. The man whose life and works inspired this masterpiece, reading from his book, Shooting Zodiac, Robert Graysmith provided our introduction. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon, which features more than 50 weekly rum and rant podcasts, as well as a glut of uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, are available in the show notes. There are also links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed. And everything you need to know about what we do can be found at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to remember the name of the weird guy at Darlene's painting party are Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the former film critic at the LA Weekly, village voice turned filmmaker, screenwriter of Black Christmas, and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf, host of the Screen Drafts podcast and Vidiot's Trivia, Clay Keller, stalwart supporter of everything we do in One Heat Minute Productions, film critic, writer, editor at New York Magazine, filmmaker, Bilga Abiri, best-selling author, screenwriter, journalist, as well as host and writer behind our definitive series on 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats, Josie and the Podcats, Maria Lewis the best screening moderator in LA and probably the greater US, Jim Hempel, host of the Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year With Women and Noir Vember hashtags, Mariah Gates, Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and LA Times, and the co-host of our Miami Nice podcast, 
Katie Walsh. Film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope, author of David Fincher Mind Games, Adam Naiman. Writer and film critic at Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson. Art director, writer and the creator of Cinephile, a card game, Corey Everett. Editor-in-chief, Fangoria, Phil Nobile Jr. Senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields. Senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone and the former Time Out New York editor, David Fear. And finally, theatre director, playwright, film critic and host of the Ink and Paint podcast, Daniel Lemon. Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film follows Robert Graysmith from the suffocating dead end of Bob Vaughan's basement to family rock bottom. From the oppressive, cavernous hole that this case has created for him and for San Francisco, Graysmith realises that the only way out is through. Going back to the beginning, as it were, to talk to a friend of Chiara Moriarty's departed Darlene, Claire DeVal's incarcerated Linda Del Buono, Graysmith hears a name that unlocks this torturous mystery. Once that name is spoken, Graysmith cannot be contained. He's compelled to wake Tosky in the middle of the night to plead their case. So with an epiphany and a clarity, it just feels right that this week's theme should be The Usual Suspects. Let's get to the scene. Racing away in the rain, Graysmith feels the gravity of this case and of this film hitting like flashbulbs. But his mind and the frantic wipers swat them away. Streaks of water stream past Graysmith's sodden face. They're illuminated by passing buildings and cars like lightning strikes of epiphany. It's this moment that Fincher implies the flashes of the years of this case swarming Graysmith. It's here that Fincher expresses profound restraint. In so many movies, this kind of moment the audience will receive explicit flashback reminders of all the places Graysmith has been, the information to his mind, the tug-of-war between theories and suspects. It's the kind of moment essential and earned in this week's thematic film, The Usual Suspects. The collage behind Chaz Palminteri's Dave Kuyan prompts an audio-visual collage to illustrate the effortlessness of verbal Kint's elaborate lie. Zodiac doesn't want to make it that easy. It would be doing the entire case an injustice to overcome the insurmountable weight of the uncertainty. As Gyllenhaal's Graysmith damply dwells in his car, the sparkling water shooting past his face, catching the light to illuminate the dark, I feel the weight of this task. Poised at the precipice of this project's end, my mind pulses with all the ways that this now 15-year-old masterpiece has illuminated its rare vintage. Here's a sampling of the incredible choir of voices that fire in my synapses as I stare into this moment of the film including Adam Naiman, Daniel Lamon, Phil Nobile Jr., David Fear, Katie Walsh, April Wolfe, Corey Everett, and Clay Keller. It's like the 60s are giving way to the 70s. Three Dog Night and Donovan are singing kind of hippie <laughs> folk on the soundtrack, but that counterculture is quite malevolent in a Mansonian way, but also yeah. who or whatever the Zodiac is. Yes. But the, the, the lake murder is not as stylized. I mean, in that opening scene where the lovers are killed in the car, Fincher is very clearly evoking the end of Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. He's creating a kind of 
web of pop cultural illusions with history and pop culture history and different forms of veracity. It feels like you're tumbling into a vortex watching this. It feels like the rules of the, 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 the basic rules of cinema don't apply to this thing. I guess it's on, I mean, I, you know, there are an endless laundry list of the reasons why this film is so hypnotic and the reasons why it's, you know, it's a film that you continuously come back to and you still feel yourself drawn into the mystery and absurdity of it. But I think it's also just the fact that it's just, there's just something endlessly fascinating about every single frame. Like, yeah, he doesn't waste a single frame of it. And so you never feel like you're wasting your time watching it, even if it's the hundredth time watching it. But Zodiac is a movie that I would spend time in, right? And so that's why I return to it. I return to it for the, um, the craft. I don't think I'm going to learn new details. I'm never going to feel that feeling again yeah. of, of, you know, so it's, it's more about like uh, if you've ever gone to a museum and then you've gone back to a museum, it's, it's revisiting the, the piece of art on the wall again. And, and, you know, maybe trying to chase that feeling that you had the first time you had it. But I think I would, I come to it for different reasons now. And it's just sort of an appreciation of, of the craft. Hey, um, I got this, I, uh, I got an invite to go to this, um, an early screening of the new Fincher film. So he's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to take off for a couple of hours. And I was like, okay, great. I'll see you in a little while. I'm just going to be here. Like, let me know how it is. And like four hours later, he comes back and he just has this kind of dazed look in his face. And he was like, I think I just saw a masterpiece. And I was like, really? Oh my God, is that good? And he was like, yeah, this is amazing. And he said, he said the one line that, um, that I'm going to give him full credit for, but I can't not say it because it, totally colored how I saw the film when I eventually saw it. He went, that's the first serial killer film that I've ever seen that could have been made by a serial killer. The idea being that it was just so obsessive and intense and so, so like, couldn't let go of things. Um, and just, you know, so fastidious and yet so chaotic and out of control. Uh, I remember just being like, oh my God, wow. And then he went back and saw it again. He goes, I think there's another screening in a few days. And he went back and saw it again. Like, I don't know, three days later. The the postscript to this is that I was like, I'm so jealous of the fact, not that you saw the movie early, but that you saw a film and had that feeling that you get. And you know this feeling when you walk out having just seen a masterpiece and immediately know it's one. Like, it's not the kind of thing where you have to sit with it or not the kind of thing where it re slowly reveals itself layer by layer to be a masterpiece or it feels flawed and then suddenly time catches up with it. The kind of feeling you get when you immediately walk out of something and I'm sort of like, I, this is, I can't believe this. And two days after he saw Zodiac, I managed to weasel my way into the very first New York press screening of There Will Be Blood. And when I walked out three hours later <laughs> after that, I went, I'm pretty sure I've just seen a masterpiece. <laughs> like, I, I, I get it now. Like that, that scream from Pell James is, it sort of cuts you to your core. Like it's, it's something that, um, you know, hopefully a lot of us will never have to like hear in real life or uh, experience or, or make that sound ever in our lives. But I do think that like the, the dedication to detail does allow Fincher to sort of like stylistically take liberties if he wants to, you know, maybe it's in the the cab scene where it's kind of a slow-mo motion as a moment happening there as well and yeah it just it, it's i as someone who like i also like i i will watch you know any kind of manson thing and be like they got this wrong they got this wrong they got this wrong <laughs> and i appreciate like an uh, a dedication to to detail like that in terms of like getting these actual events and these actual crimes with real people and real survivors in them um, getting them right. There's a scene where he's got his kids at the table and he's having them go through and it's it's funny first off, you know, Fincher has to have like a little <laughs> bit of comic relief there. I think it's great. Yes. Um, and uh, 
he's like, okay, don't tell your mom. And then you see a great shot and it's low. It's like right at, at the table level and it's pretty close. And you see the older son is um, saying something. He's saying a clue. And then we, I'm not sure if we pull focus or not, but um, in the foreground, the younger son's hands come into the frame in the foreground and he's marking something off. And it, and it moves the story in a single shot where you don't even need the coverage. You're just doing blocking within that one shot and you're getting all of the things that you need to make this table scene quite dynamic and I do you know that's one of the things you're talking about uh lighting at table scenes no one does a table scene like him and I do think that part of it is that he is really thinking about lighting 360 yes. and that's really difficult to do but the thing is if you light 360 that means it gives your camera department more time to do setups after it's it's lit like you take yes. the time yes and then you can have like the actors um, at their best because uh, you know he's really giving these actors the stage to perform on and to do their best work and if you are putting in the extra work with camera and lighting before the actors even get to set then you know that's that's where they get to shine and so I just I appreciate that forethought and saying that I know that the setup is going to take longer it doesn't matter because once the actors come in we're going to get the best if it weren't true you would never write a movie this way. You know what I mean? Like if this was not based on obsessive yes. reporting, I cannot imagine a screenwriter or a filmmaker making this movie completely out of thin air. Like you just you just wouldn't do it. I mean, even in terms of the passage of time, the resolution, the number of characters, you know, how the movie's kind of passing the baton between Graysmith and, and Toski is the lead and doesn't even team them up for two hours, basically, into yes. two and a half hours until they actually kind of do anything together. And it's like seemingly breaking so many rules about how you would tell a story and yet kind of stands as its own thing. And because it can, you know, David Fincher has the receipts, he can point to the research um, and yet still come up with something that is so entertaining, you know, at the end of it. it. This is a minor miracle of a movie. Like, there's no other movie like this. There are other, you know, investigation movies. There are other serial killer movies. There are other uh, sort of epic decades spanning uh, historical omnibus cast movies like this. But there, <laughs> there, there is no... There is no other movie that I can think of that has uh, uh, is, is, as it's such an easy watch. It lulls you. It's got this mood that kind of like lulls you into it. And you're just totally on this ride. And there's constant comedy and there is constant uh, drama and there is constant just sort of like simmering terror. And it has this incredibly unique, really, really uh, satisfying uh, tone and mood that pulls you through the entire time. And then on top of that, just being, you know, making you feel like you learned something <laughs> and also making you feel like you're participating to some extent. Uh, it is it is a full experience just beyond being just passively uh, a story or some fun performances or whatever. It is just kind of you when you throw on Zodiac, you go you just you go into Zodiac for an hour and 45 minutes. And, and I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was taking notes, but you know, it's, it's one of those movies that you just, it, it dares you to lose interest or look at your phone or something. And, and the fact that it's almost three hours long is, I, I don't know another movie that there are other movies that can hold your attention for three hours. I don't know if there's another movie that gives you so many things at the same time without ever feeling uh, anything less than totally focused and confident in what it's doing. Like this is, I think on every level, and I'm sure you've, you've heard this from everybody you've had on here, this is just a incredibly unique movie.
Graysmith's modest orange hashback arrives to the sloping ground in front of his San Francisco home. Unlike Toski, Graysmith's ride is the antithesis of the effortlessly cool bullet. We watch the stop with acute eyes for what Manny Farber calls termite art. Handbrake, checking that his goalie's gear, doors locked. Heading back into his home, he's muttering theories of multiple killers. This near inaudible blubbering collapses chapters of theories about Zodiac killers, plural, before Graysmith enters. He finds his once warm home shrouded in darkness. This is really one of the key questions of the whole film and Finch's art. It ruminates on self-fulfillment and self-destruction. This is the moment where his obsession and increasing notoriety lead to the manifestation of the worst possible scenario. Empty beds, an empty home. It's a death of sorts, a husk of a life. The scene of a crime. The crime of what it is to lose time. Melanie has finally and overtly taken the chances that Robert has been taking with his own life and the life of his family out of his hands. Here's Bilga Abiri on failed marriages and institutions in Zodiac and April Wolf on Zodiac allowing us to dwell in our protagonist's failure. It's not a puzzle anymore. This is an actual thing. I think the film needs that. Yes. at that point right i mean we talk about i mean i was talking about how the you know it's kind of a a nod to genre that the, that the film's delivering but i think the film really needs that moment because up until this point um i mean obviously you know his, his marriage falls apart but um but you know grace but that's never a real consequence in movies right <laughs> you know? i mean we've watched We've done Heat, we've done Inside, we've done all these movies. Their, their marriages fall apart in all of those films, and it's uh, only, like, a secondary consequence. Like, Pacino's like, I'm going the downhill slope of my, mar- uh, my marriage, my third. It's like, third marriage? Ah, it's yeah, fine. Exactly. So he's never really had to face the consequence of what he's dealing with. No. None of these guys. I mean, these guys have all had, basically their lives ruined by this thing, but they've never had to deal like a specific, there's never been a scene of them just having to deal with the consequence of what's happened. Mm. And so the film kind of needs this moment. Um, And again, even though it's coming courtesy of somebody who appears to not have had anything to do with the Zodiac, but (laughs) appears to also still be slightly psychotic. Um, And uh, and so I think that's, yeah, I think the scene is really, really important to, I mean, obviously, it's very scary within the space of the movie, but I think it's also really important for that sense of just just gnawing uncertainty that the film leaves, leaves you with once it's over. I mean, the scary the thing about Zodiac for me is, and I've said this before, is as much as I love the movie, and I'm, as much as I love watching the movie, the the greatest feeling, I mean, by greatest, I mean also the most disturbing feeling is having just watched zodiac yes the 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 stepping out of zodiac is every time too like every time i watch it i watch it and i mean the first time i saw it was in a theater after that i just watched it at home and every time i watched watch it at home i feel like my world has changed after i step out and part of that is part of that i think really has to do with the the structure of the film and, and this kind of creepy open-ended uh, uncertain way that it ends you've talked to some folks uh who've, who've uh suggested that the film is about like the failure of american institutions and i don't know that i agree with that sorry what i, I mean the, the institutions do fail but i watched watching the film i get the sense that they're doing the best they can like i don't watch the film and think oh the cops fucked up like the cops are doing basically the best job they can, as far as I can tell. I mean, they're they're actually quite professional. I mean, to a fault. I really deeply enjoy about this movie in particular, but but you know, it often comes up in Fincher films, is that he is really, I think, okay with characters failing. Yes. And 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 I I enjoy um a script where 
everything's leading up to what we think is going to be a big reveal, what we think is going to be a big success for a character. And then it's totally taken away from them and they have to start over again. And, and that kind of, and that also builds its own kind of structure into a script too, but we don't often allow our characters and their plots to fail. And, and and he's okay with saying, okay, it, it, most of the time in real life, things fail and you have to start and stop again. And that's something where you also get it, you get it built into in in a very um, uh, obvious way when he actually has it in the script of uh, Robert Johnny Jr.'s character um, telling him, like stopping him in his home and saying like, oh, you thought that you were going to come here and motivate me <laughs> to find my life's purpose. And it's like, that's what the the viewer at home is thinking at the same time and he's pointing it out and he's saying like essentially you just failed and so um <laughs> his character failed and had to find a new way and it turns out that that's the old way which is the library and it's just like finding finding yourself and kind of sticking with your identity and returning to the self in order to succeed this is something that i love about this film i mean that's the thing is like i think that there's every artist kind of goes through that moment where they they think that they need someone else to do something when it turns out that most projects actually continue and get finished because you have put in the the time and effort to make sure that they do get done And this is what this character, you know, that Jake Gyllenhaal is playing is actually learning in that moment. It's just like, oh, you should finish what you started. You've got five minutes. Linda, I'm Robert. Did you get my note? What's this about? Zodiac. There you go. You got the look. What look? I, I didn't mean anything. Tell me about this painting party. I told the cops about that so long ago. Mm. Darlene always had a lot of boys around, even though she was married. This one guy was weird, though. He um, used to bring her presents from Tijuana, and I don't know why she was friends with him. She once told me he'd killed somebody. Really? Yeah, I think maybe when he was in the service. Maybe? I think so. Was he into movies? Was he a movie buff? I can tell you that he was not into people. The party Darlene threw, people were supposed to just show up and drink beer, help paint, but this guy showed up in a suit and just sat in a chair all by himself all night long, didn't talk to anyone. And Darlene told me to stay away from him. She was scared of him. A couple weeks later, she was dead. Sorry, do you remember his name? Um, It was short, like a nickname, like Stan. Rick? No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick. It was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. It was Lee. Lee. Yeah, Lee. Sounds right. Thunder booms. Constant torrential downpour outside. Here's Maria Lewis and I talking about Claire Duval and this scene before James Vanderbilt reveals that Claire Duval was almost not even in Zodiac. But now, as the woman that I am, I love that scene because I can acknowledge that I am Robert Graysmith and <laughs> my Arthur Lee Allen 
was seeing the photos and video that confirmed that Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez were back together. Oh my God. Springing out of bed, running through my friend Nicola Scott's house, kicking open her office door, and she was in the middle of illustrating, oh, just something like casually important for DC Comics and being like, it's on, Agatafar, here we go. And just like slamming the salt shakers on the table version of being like it is on look at the video we're analyzing it from six different angles i was still in like i think i had no pants on in a pajama top you know it was probably seven o'clock in the morning and it was in the middle of the wind middle of winter in the mountains it was bloody freezing but that's why i related to that scene now like going back and watching it before this discussion at the time one of the reasons i loved it is because it's a false promise. Mm. It's this false promise of this is all worth something. Everything you guys sacrificed and like Mark Ruffalo's character, Hall's character, Robert Downey Jr., like everybody, every single character, everything you gave up over the years and years and years of pursuit have been worth it because we've gotten to this moment. Except it's not really worth it, is it? Because there isn't the resolution as we find out, you know, in the sort of like proceeding moments following the scene. But it feels worth it in that moment when he lays it down in a scene that like in the diner, the diner where they first met, you know, oh God, just like, oh, what a Fincher move. Like, ah, just perfect. Like full circle, great succinct storytelling when they first met it was day this time when they're meeting it's night like symbolism (laughs) and their lives couldn't be more different as well which i also love like it's it's just brilliant it's the kind of thing we just like this person is a master and is considered a master for a reason and they back and forth it's the pace of the conversation it's the skill obviously of fincher as a filmmaker but also the skill of Hall and Ruffalo to be able to generate banter and like a speed and a pace that feels naturalistic and you know those poor cunts would have had to have done that scene like 72 times right and every time whatever cut we got right whatever version we got maybe that's take one maybe that's take 101 but it feels just like that's the conversation happening for the first time and it is so dialogue heavy and it's so there's such a weird comparison to make right but throughout the loki press cycle for that show everybody was talking about like you know the show is so important and significant because it's just a dialogue show you know it's just like people talking like that's the action the action is the juice the action is the dialogue juice. And I was like, yeah, but it's shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like this is not the dynasty. You guys think you're doing the dynasty, but to get to the dynasty, you have a thousand other little moments of him banging his head against a wall. And same for Mark Ruffalo's character. And like there, it's this just amazing sort of payoff as mania seemingly produces something worthwhile, seemingly, right? Because of course we know Athlete Ellen dies of a heart attack before they can re-interview him. Uh, they have a nice little moment where Grace Smith goes and sees him in the Bunnings or whatever. And Bunnings. they kind of like eyeball each other. <laughs> well, you know, like- <laughs> Bunnings is not associated with anything to do with the Zodiac Killer. Or like Equalizer, end of the Equalizer, when um, Denzel Washington is like fucking mitered tanning his way through like 86 henchmen. <laughs> Maybe that's a crossover there. Anyway, that's way off topic. And those films have absolutely nothing to do with each other. The Everest of the scene, the crescendo, if you will, is the slamming of the salt and pepper, right? How interesting. The different elements that they bring, how they make a meal, perfect symbolism. So he slams them, the door to door, and it's the final sort of piece, right? And it's satisfying as well because this has come not that long after the really brilliant Clea Duvall scene where he's trying to fit a a circle shape into a square hole. The energy is so great because she's fucking orange is the new blacking it and who the fuck is this kid coming in (laughs) in a goddamn 
dumb Parker and his little fucking notes and he's a little fucking cartoonist for the paper and he thinks he's going to solve this fucking case after everyone else has fucked it up for so long. You know, she has seen it all, done it all, like cigarettes are currency. She does not have time for this guy. So it's also a really, really brilliant way to establish, you know, a lot of people have different motivations and intentions when they're suggesting suspects or, you know, different possibilities and alibis and whatever and she has no motivation in that particular moment so you know that when she's saying lee she's saying it genuinely and Mm. the way they portray that and build that is great right but that's why this is so satisfying because this whole movie and this whole story is essentially about taking a, a circle shape and trying to fit it into a square and it's just endless versions of that you know if you were going to do a surrealist puzzle of some description it's just like different people trying to figure out the same puzzle and fucking it up in different ways and getting some distorted version of a picture. And that moment is the one moment you fool yourself as an audience member into thinking that the circle shapes fitting the circle shape. That was a reshoot, by the way, too. I don't know if you know that there was another actor, uh, another, there was another actor, wonderful actor, but just wasn't quite what, what didn't get it there. And so that was a reshoot and Clea came in and just destroyed it. Like, it's such a great, I love, I love how she smiles at him when she's saying no. She's like, fuck you, dude. Like, no, it's not. Like, she realizes he's so wound up about it, but yeah, she comes and just destroys it. No, I don't think so. Are you sure? Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick. It was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. It was Lee. Lee. Yeah, Lee. Sounds right. Officer, please, you didn't let me in. It's an emergency. I just need to see one file. Oh, you need to come one back file. tomorrow morning. One second. 8 I shouldn't be talking to you. You got five minutes. Okay. Here, here. Linda states that some of Darlene's closest friends are Lee, who used to bring Darlene presents from Tijuana. So what? He knew her. Linda said Lee. This is Lee. That's just one name in a file that contains hundreds. It's nothing. Dave Toski. Agrees with me. Our investigation into the subject is over. As if catapulted from the exchange with Darlene's sister Linda, now incarcerated, Graysmith runs to the Vallejo Police Department. The gatekeeper in a workmanlike peach-coloured short sleeve shirt is Sergeant Jack Mullinax, Elias Codius. The look that passes between the men is conciliatory. Desperation from Graysmith is received with accommodation. And yet, even as he comes armed with a name, it's not enough. As we move into the next scene, the frustration is expressed in his mania. He doesn't want to interpret his own personal failings. The evidence that his life, as he knows it, has fallen apart is all around it. And it's with a kind of paradoxical irony that the final flap of the butterfly wing that caused the tsunami is about to be unearthed. Oh. Who's there? 
return my calls. Oh, I've been kind of busy. Yeah, I can see that. How's the book coming? I tried to send you these. I called the cron. Well, I, I'm not a cartoonist anymore, so. I heard. Uh. When's the last time you ate something? Nothing makes sense anymore. Did it ever? Yeah, it did. Robert, it was just the date that didn't end. You don't mean that. A little. The kids miss you. Can't have them see me like this. Neither can I. So do whatever you have to. Finish this. Here's Meg Shields talking about how Zodiac narrowly avoids reducing women to the bummer wife. Mariah Gates talks about how Zodiac cares about Melanie and Mrs. Toski. And finally, Jim Hemphill contrasts the dissolution of Robert and Melanie's marriage with Finch's other great doomed relationship movie, Gone Girl. So that's, I, I would count that as, as a good show-don't-tell wife moment in this movie. Whereas there are, I, I take less issue with uh, uh, wife Tashi and more with uh, some of some of the seventies. <laughs> Sorry, wife Tashi station. <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to watch New Hope now without being like, remember Zodiac? <laughs> remember how George Lucas was obsessed with Zodiac? <laughs> um, no, no, no. There's just there's a and again, like I'm nitpicking. Like this film is is. Again, unimpeachable. There's just some wife moments where I think we we flirt with that, you know, male screenwriter trying to humanize male protagonist with wife moments. The line I really love from her is when they you're first introduced to Toski and he's having his first banter, and he's trying to say like I'm with my lady, like blah blah blah, and she knows this is all just banter right and she's like I'm putting the Folgers on <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like you know how many times she's heard him pretend that he's spending time with her but he's gonna go do his case right it's yes it's really and, great and, and the autopilot of the fact that she just gets up to make the coffee without the nonsense she's yeah. done that she's so like many times I'm just making the coffee I'm it's, just making the time. coffee and what I particularly like about her is she has these two different bookmarked lines and the first date where she's like he's like I'm really sorry this was a shitty date and she's like this is the most exciting date I've ever been on and then when she's leaving she's like it was just the first date that didn't and and it's the beautiful realization that it's on it's not just on him for being shitty it's on her for not realizing earlier that what was so driving in them was this thing that also was so shitty about him right and and I don't think that puts her as like the the shitty wife. I think it, it is really um, insightful about the way that people get attracted to other people and don't see the flaws for a long time, a lot of times. And I say this as someone who is often attracted to shitty people. It's like, you, <laughs> you just see what you want to see until it gets to a point where you're, that's not shiny enough anymore. Uh, <laughs> and then uh. you're like, oh, what did I do to my, I got myself into this. <laughs> and, and I think it's, um, it's not throwing her under the bus. It's it's giving her a um, a true form of um, agency in her own realization of her own self in a way that I don't know that you always you always get. And it's something that that um, Grace Smith doesn't really come to in this movie. He never fully understands how this obsession has destroyed his life. He he doesn't get that growth. No, and he just and- he just has his you know. He's got, prize. he's got his eye on the prize and his blinkers on and he'll probably spend the rest of his life in some way shape or form regretting that he didn't do what bill armstrong did or couldn't do what bill armstrong did you know in the, in all the positives mm-hmm. there's there's that awareness that you are making decisions that are going to have ramifications for the lives of kids 
Yeah. And, 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 and those obsessive people have impact on their children in maybe positive or negative ways. And we're never really going to know, but I think what's great is that it doesn't, it does. I love so much. I know this might sound strange, but I love so much that she drops that bomb on him and his only response is to just keep being him. Yeah. Like it's a bomb and it hits me and it hurts. And I'm sure that it hits other people when they're watching it hurts. I'm like, oh, ouch. Like that, like this is just a first date that never ended. And it's kind of like the worst thing to sort of diminish their relationship and their children and their lives together to that point with this one like eviscerating line. It's like, you know, like that, it's like that Twitter meme of like, oh, someone get this person a body bag because they're yeah. dead now. Like, like yeah. it's the body bag line. And he's just like, cool, just back to the corkboard, back to and my then- board of yarn. And then she she drops off the divorce papers and in dealing with that, that's how he finds the big piece. And instead of doing the, the like the right thing for his life, which is deal with this scary paperwork about divorce, he's like, oh shit, here's, here's the piece of evidence. And you're like, no. And that shows just how obsessed he was about the crime over dealing with his actual life. I think that's such a great visual moment in a movie full of, great visual moments again this is like where the comparison to hitchcock comes in is you know gone girl is both it's great pulp but it's also it's got like the searing hostility of something like bergman scenes from a marriage i mean it's it it is scenes from a marriage done as like a pulp thriller and it does both things brilliantly i mean just the 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 ways the ways those two pick at each other and the way, and again, that whole idea of Fincher being great with the passage of time. I mean, in the, the sort of flashback sequences in Gone Girl, it is amazing how well he and Gillian Flynn just compress the disillusion of a marriage, like the going from, this is the person I wanna be with my whole life to, I've made a horrible mistake and this yeah. person is, this is a betrayal of what I thought they were and just just how the per, how the person could go from being love of your life to being this person that just like every little thing he does, you know, annoys, they do annoys you. You know, it's so, uh, it's just amazing. It's great, great filmmaking and great storytelling. James, Robert. James. Is he actually here? I'm gonna kill him. James. I'm calling SFPD. Where's my gun? Dave! Robert! Go away! Dave! You made a mistake! Get away from the window. I mean, you're around front. No, you won't. You have to hear this. No, I don't. The first day was the one time that he was weak. The one time that he gave something away. Robert, I am calling the police. It's Arthur Lee Allen! Where'd you get that name? Called the Belli's house. December 69, I need to kill. Today's my birthday. It was his birthday. Arthur Lee Allen was born on December 18th. Get in here. Here's Anna Swanson on knocking on windows in the rain. The first thing that I think we, we should talk about is, you know, it's this sort of early hours of the morning. Um, Graysmith has like surprised Toski at home and Toski just wants him fucking dead. <laughs> um, but I even I like that it, like it's raining. And I was thinking like there's quite a bit of rain in this film, like for a film set in California, like more than a number of scenes, it's raining, which I, I think is very fun because, of course, like when you think of California you don't think of rain and you don't think of basements and this film has both <laughs> but yeah it's this sort of like early hour of the morning like 24-hour diner which is I haven't this I think this is the first time I watched this since like going into quarantine and never before have I watched this and been like oh I want to go to that diner oh it, yeah <laughs> like, I, I want to wake up my friends in the middle of the night in the rain oh, that's the other thing it's yeah. like just imagine knocking on a window Meg Shields your friend Meg Shields <laughs> Knock, Meg. I've been. <laughs> I've just watched Collateral. <laughs> I need to talk to somebody. Um. Oh yes. No. I, it's it's fun because when Meg is in Toronto, she literally lives like a block up the street from me. So that that is based on real life. Um. Just us knocking on each other's doors, saying that we need to go to a diner at that moment. Um. But yeah, I just like I want to go to a diner. Um. Yeah. But aside from that, yeah, it's just kind of 
it's it's Graysmith pleading his case, I think, and and Toski sort of being, you know, yes, he's a cop, but I think also kind of like almost like he's kind of the judge in that moment, you know, saying like, well, you know, this is circumstantial or like, what about this piece of evidence? Like it's almost Graysmith kind of pleading his case as he would trying to get this conviction. And I think it also just speaks to like Graysmith's kind of a unique position in terms of the power he holds over the case as like a cartoonist slash journalist slash you know author of the the book that it's based on but not a cop like he can't walk into a police station and you know get at the files without someone signing off on that and that's like in the 70s now he definitely couldn't was his birthday arthur lee allen was born on december 18th get in here He wrote me, you know. 2,500 suspects. The only one who ever wrote me a letter was Lee Allen. They like to help, you know, sometimes. Yes, Robert, I know. He was arrested January 1975 for molestation. He sent me that when he got out. Dear Dave, if I can ever be of any help to you, just let me know. I'm sorry I wasn't your man. And it's typewritten. Using a typewriter is not a crime. Andy knew Darlene. It's in the Vallejo files. Bolnek said that he was your favorite suspect, that you spent two years on him, and, and that nobody ever came close. All the evidence said no. Sherwood disqualified his handwriting. The same shirt with the drinks like Paul Avery now. It's precisely this calculated repetition that sets us up for the climactic scene of the film. A diner scene. Back to the same diner where these two men met. This time, no noise. No distractions. Even now, Toski looks worn, weathered, tired. Gray. The entire sequence is out of focus. In crystal clear, sharp focus is Graysmith. Willing to brave the weather in order to get an audience with the one person as dedicated to the cause as he is. They like to help. I know Robert. Isn't that just a beautiful distillation of the difference between passion and profession? Saying Toski's line to him about Sherwood Marill is the final push to test his thesis about the Zodiac Killer. The final word on this episode goes to Daniel Lemon talking about how Zodiac teaches us and has taught us how to watch and receive it. And then to Zodiac star, John Carroll Lynch, about what films resonate and what films endure. There's so much about the way that he constructs this film. And I guess Vanderbilt's script as well and the beauty of the editing and the beauty of the cinematography and David Shire's just divine score mm. is it's constantly it's a very teaching you how script. it's constantly teaching you how to watch it. And it's always changing the rules of how to watch it it's never like you don't like that thing of like talking about the beginning of the film where it's like it sets up this is the what the rhythm of the film is this is the tone of the film we're going to jump with different tones it's going to be it's going to be a journalist journalist film it's going to be a police procedural it's going to be a horror film it's going to be a you know a, a social commentary it's going to be all those things and then we will continuously change pulling it the rug out from under your feet what this thing is so you always have to keep one keep try and keep in step with it while it is watching watching you with a maniacal frightening grin waiting to jump out of the bushes and tear your throat out which it never will do because that would be too satisfying for you as an audience it's the same kind of principle of hanukkah with um hanukkah with you know funny games 
rewinding the film to go, no, I'm not going to give you what you want because the minute I give you what you want, you're going to stop listening. And the thing that Fincher wants you with this film is to constantly be listening because it's the statement of, this is how we let this shit happen. We listen to these terrible men. We let them get their soapbox. We promote them the way that they want to be promoted. They are all of them played to a T by this man. And that's the reason why for decades and decades, Robert Gray Smith amasses enormous amounts of material in his house. His marriage has break up. He loses his relationship with his children. He loses his job because this man played him like a fucking fiddle purely for his own enjoyment and how deeply horrifying that is. Here's a different kind of metaphor of this. There are people who go to restaurants for a particular type of sweetbread. They go because they'll travel 1500 miles to wait on a wait list and they'll they'll get the 945 seating uh, you know in this you know they'll climb a mountain top they'll go up to three miles uh, you know without the donkey to go in and they'll have their sweetbreads and then they'll climb down and get wi-fi access and then they'll talk about the sweetbreads that they just traveled you know to have and uh, those people love a particular kind of restaurant yes you and i uh, to some degree share a love of this particular kind of cinema this kind of um this kind of uh you know these kinds of masters other people will never be interested in in that and that's that's fine it doesn't doesn't really matter but you know when you when you started the conversation around zodiac and whether or not zodiac or another movie is is um is critically acclaimed um at some point they get you know they gave the academy award for best picture to around the world in 80 days yes with david niven and shirley mclean as a as i believe shirley mclean plays an indian princess yes an east indian princess in that so it's not great uh, and <laughs> uh, and when it when you when you go back and look at it certainly it was an astounding production Yes, and uh, and all of the assets of the production are amazing, but if you were if you were to four year late four years later, um, in film school, they're not going to run around the world in eighty days for their students. No. They're going to run something else, but they will run. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Yes, because Stanley Kramer made it. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, they'll <laughs> they'll run that because that's because because that has an enduring fingerprint on the work. You know, um Karin Kusama's work in uh, Destroyer is incredible and oh. the movie did not garner uh the same kinds of popular acclaim that other movies that year did, but Destroyer's going to be taught in film schools. And uh, and the kind of control that that movie, the kind of what she's going for, um, and how she gets there is amazing. Um, and uh, you know, I don't think we can really compare wh- how people who love, who are willing to travel that far for sweetbreads and what they like <laughs> with with what everybody likes. Yes, it doesn't mean that what everybody likes is bad. There's nothing wrong with it's around the world in eighty days. There's nothing wrong with it. It's beautifully made, you know. It's yeah. a piece of craft. It is. <laughs> who cares whether Phineas Fogg makes it? You know, who cares? That concludes the twenty-third episode of Zodiac Chronicle: Capricorn Part One. The next episode, Capricorn Part Two, is the finale of the Zodiac Chronicle series. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes and future seasons of One Heat Minute Production series. If you can't get enough, Unplug Zodiac sessions are currently and will be continuing to be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed and produced and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas the Duff. Thank you so much. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers and badges were done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me. 
via email at amy.read0310 at gmail.com. Until the next time. The last time. Good. Bye. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.